Well, it is always a special time on the first Sunday of the month to celebrate the Lord's table uh, together. It's a visible picture of the gospel, and we are called to do this in remembrance of Christ. And we do come to the perfect passage just in our study of John's gospel to prepare us for the table this morning. Join me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, where we are looking at verses 1 through 4. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. When we are turning a corner now in our study of this gospel, moving now to the second half of this book, for 12 chapters, John has showcased the glory of Christ through his miracles and through his teaching. We've heard public calls to salvation. We've seen Jesus confirmed his divine sonship through his miraculous works. We've seen him present himself to the nation in a most prophetic way. He rides into town on a donkey. He's heralded by the people, just as Zechariah 10 predicted. For 12 chapters, we have looked at three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. But all that changes now as we move into chapter 13 and following. The glory of Christ's miracles now turns to glory of Christ's cross. His death, his suffering, his burial. The public nature of his teaching now turns private. As he will focus his attention on his apostles and only his apostles. Starting in verse 5, he'll celebrate a supper with them. He'll make glorious promises to them. He'll issue commands specific for them. In chapter 17, that high priestly prayer, he'll even pray on behalf of them. Now, this is why John concludes the first half of his gospel the way he did. We looked at it last week. He concludes with that final public appeal for sinners to come to him in salvation, for salvation. Come to me, believe in me, turn from your sin, believe my claims. And he ends there because what follows now, beginning in chapter 13, is only for his people. All of the promises, all the truth, it's only for his people. Only for those who find their salvation in him alone. As verse 1 opens now, we are with Jesus With his apostles, we're in an upper room. The pace of the gospel slows down dramatically. We only have 24 hours left in Jesus' life. That's what chapters 13 through 19 will record. Only 24 hours, the last day, the last night for Jesus. This is Thursday night. This is Nisan 15 on the Jewish calendar, April 6th on our calendar. A.D. 30, and a small group of men are about to eat the final Passover meal. Not just their last meal together, though it is, but this is the final, last legitimate Passover meal ever. Why? Because the next day, Jesus is going to die as the final and full Passover sacrifice. Every previous Passover has pointed to him, pointed to this moment. 
And so what John does now as he begins the second half of this book is he gives us a theological grid through which he wants us to understand everything that is about to take place. Verses one through four here. This is John's introduction to the second half of his book. This is a summary of the next seven chapters. Turn to chapter 19. Might be on the screen. This section will finalize in verse 30. Jesus said, it is finished. That's the the finalization of this second half. It is finished. Finish. This is Jesus' cry of victory. He's going to bow his head. He's going to give up his spirit. He's going to die. And so these first four verses now are the summary statement, the theological grid. If we miss the reason for Jesus' death, if we don't understand these verses, then we've missed the gospel. Because Jesus is going to die no ordinary death. No ordinary death. He will die a unique death. It's special in its character. It's matchless in its effect. Understand, Jesus is not the first person to be crucified. 30,000 people were crucified during his lifetime in Palestine. 30,000 people. But John's point in these first four verses is that Jesus' crucifixion, his crucifixion was entirely different. It's in a class all of its own. So we're given five distinctions now, distinctives. Five distinctives that set Jesus' death apart from every other death. Five distinctives that John will circle back to over and over again as he concludes this book. Five distinctives that lift us in worship for our Savior prepares us to celebrate the Lord's table. Let's read the text starting in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And you can stop there. Five distinctives that set Jesus' death apart from every other death. This will make Jesus' death unique and special, again, and matchless. Here's the first distinctive. Distinctive number one, Jesus' death was a slaughter to save sinners. It was a slaughter to save sinners. That's the imagery of verse one. Now, John writes, before the feast of the Passover. This is more than a time stamp, though it is a time stamp. This is more than that, though. John's emphasis here is more theological than chronological. From the very start, John is going to ground Jesus' coming death within the upcoming Passover celebration. That was a festival. 
And it's a festival that revolved around the slaughtering, the slitting of the throat. It was a slaughter, the slaughtering of unblemished lambs. They've been celebrating this for thousands of years, ever since God delivered his people from Egyptian captivity. So John starts the second half of his book the same way he started the first half of his book. Remember John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he testifies, behold, pointing to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb provided by God. The Lamb of God who takes away, not the chains from Egypt, but the Lamb who will remove the sin the barrier between man and God, the sin of the world. So this is why John structures his gospel the way he does. He narrates it around three Passover celebrations in John chapter two, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. That's the first Passover Jesus celebrates. John 6, we're told Jesus celebrated a second Passover. But now, as this gospel concludes, we're at the final Passover, the third Passover Jesus will celebrate. It was mentioned back in chapter 11, verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, but now it's repeated here in chapter 13 for emphasis. This is the final Passover meal. This is all by design, the structure. John is setting the theological grid for how we are to understand Jesus' death. And when we recognize this in verse one, we'll then recognize the Passover symbolism that follows. Why does John include the soldiers and Chapter 19, the soldiers putting a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and bringing it up to Jesus' mouth. Why include that detail? Because in Exodus 12, Yahweh commands each Jewish family to what? Take a bunch of hyssop and apply the blood to the lintel and to the two doorposts. This is Passover symbolism. This is the theological grid and context. Why include the detail in chapter 19, verse 32, that when the soldiers came, they break the legs of the first man and of the other who is crucified with Jesus, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why include that detail? Well, John tells us, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, what is the scripture? Here it is, not a bone of him shall be broken. Reference to Exodus 12. The Passover lamb could have no broken bones. And then why include the detail of the spear wounding Jesus' side and what comes forth? Blood and what? Blood and water. Why include that detail? Again, this is imagery. This is Passover imagery. Exodus 17, God commands Moses, strike the rock, water flows. This is all the Passover imagery and symbolism. This is showing us that the Passover festival was never meant to be an end in itself. 
It was designed by God to be a symbolic picture of a future deliverance, a greater deliverance, far better than freedom from Egyptian rule. God would deliver man from the bondage of their sin. The name Passover was derived from the angel of the Lord passing over the firstborn son of every Jewish home that had covered their door with the blood of a slaughtered lamb. That sacrifice would avert God's wrath. The lamb, the lamb took the death so that the child could live. Well, looking back, we can see the ready-made imagery, right? For Jesus' death, his salvation. His blood is the Passover lamb's blood. As the lamb's throat was slit, his hands were pierced. He incurs death so that the sinner could live. He takes the punishment, the wrath, so that God's anger can pass over our heads. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so specific in the timing of Jesus' death, so specific. Each notes that Jesus died at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. on our clocks. Why is this detail so significant? It's because that is when the Passover lambs would have been killed in the temple. The priest would do that slaughter from 3 p.m. through 5 p.m. So why John in the book of Revelation records the four living creatures and the elders, they're all crying out, singing, falling down, specifically before the lamb. And they are saying, Worthy are you, why? Worthy, praise be to you, for you are slain. And the word there is slaughtered. Your throat was slit. You were slain, graphic word. And through that slaughtering, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is why Paul can look back And he can say, Christ is our Passover. Christ, our Passover. He has been sacrificed. John is clear. Jesus is the lamb every other lamb pointed to. He's the final lamb who takes away sin, who averts God's wrath against us. Passover was merely the shadow. Christ is the substance. Now, a historical note here, because I know you're all asking this question. I know it. Here's the the question. How can Jesus celebrate a Passover meal with his apostles on Thursday night, but then die when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered the next day? Anyone have that question? You should. How is that possible? Well, it's all in God's sovereignty. Here's how it's possible. At this time, Israel had two different ways of accounting for time, two different ways. In the north, the Galileans held to a sundown to sundown clock, and thus they celebrated Passover on Thursday evening. Jesus, a Galilean, celebrates it Thursday evening. But then the Judeans in the south had a sunrise to sunrise clock. And so they celebrated the Passover the next day, Friday, 
Friday evening. The priest didn't mind. There was about 2 million Jews descending on the place. They need more time to sacrifice the lambs. They don't care. They don't care about the different clocks. And so this is how in God's timing, amazing in God's timing, Jesus now can celebrate a final Passover, give the symbolism, explain all of it, and then he can die the next day while the Passover lambs are being slaughtered, all in God's sovereignty. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. Why? Because he died as the final slaughter for sin to avert God's wrath and bestow upon his children God's blessing. Number two, distinctive number two. Jesus' death was a predetermined execution. Jesus' death was a predetermined execution. So what will happen in these coming chapters is evil. Evil to the core. Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own. He'll be bound, arrested, and tried before a wicked court. The Sanhedrin will break all jury prudence as they announce Jesus' guilt. Jesus will be sentenced to death by a ruler who knew Jesus had done nothing wrong. John emphasizes that from Pilate. But notice what John says here in verse one. Despite all of that evil, all of that evil to the core, the most heinous of evil committed against the Son of God, here's what John records. Jesus, knowing he's fully aware of all of this, knowing that his hour, he owns this hour, He knows that his hour had come. This is Christ's hour when he will finally fulfill the very reason he left heaven for earth. And thus we will see Jesus orchestrate everything. Everything. He will orchestrate all of it so that he will die at his appointed time. Not one minute too late, not one minute too soon. Jesus is no hapless victim. He's no powerless martyr. He is, even through death and betrayal, he is the sovereign son who always works on his father's predetermined timetable. Again, we've seen this. John chapter two. What does Jesus tell Mary? John chapter two, my hour has not yet come. Repeated in John 7, no man laid his hand on Jesus. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Again, verse uh, chapter 8, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now as chapter 13 opens, Jesus knew that his hour had come finally. It's here. And he's fully aware, fully aware of everything that awaits him. Listen to John 18, four. Jesus knowing all the things that were coming upon him, knowing all of that, he still went forth. He knows Judas's betrayal. He knows Peter's denial. He knows the spiritual sacrifice he is going to offer. He knows the wrath he is going to endure. Because this was the hour for which he came. It's fixed from before the foundation of the world. 
It's been decided upon in the eternal counsel of the triune God. And so John makes it very clear from the start here, this, is, this hour did not belong to the Sanhedrin. This is not Caiaphas's hour. This is not Pilate's hour. This is not Rome's hour. This is Christ's hour. Look back to chapter 11. This is Christ's hour where he's troubled in spirit. You have that in chapter 11 here. He's troubled in spirit. Why? He's weeping because he's seeing the grave of Lazarus. He knows what's coming. He's going to be entering into a tomb of his own. It troubles him. You have that repeated here in chapter 13. It's, it's troubling his soul. It's in chapter 12 as well. It's troubling his soul. But still, what does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 21, chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And he's feeling the effects of what's coming Yet still, what does Jesus do? He does not shrink back from this hour. He does not shrink back. He knows the pain that he will endure. He'll be forsaken by his father. Continue verse one. Jesus knows that he would depart out of this world to the father. This is how he's enduring all of this. He has faith in his father. He's trusting his father's plans. In the midst of his greatest test, as the cross gets closer, Jesus remains faithful. He remains the submissive and obedient son. Again, why? Because he trusts his father's faithfulness. He knows his father's love for him. He knows that his father will not forsake him fully, forever. He knows the promise of Psalm 16. You, God the Father, you will not abandon my soul, the soul of Messiah. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. You won't leave me in the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You'll resurrect me. It's an Old Testament promise. Jesus endures the cross because he knows that his resurrection has been promised. His ascension has been secured. His exaltation has been fixed. And he knows that he is going to return to his father. Let's put this in the words of Hebrews 12. How, why does Jesus endure the cross? It is for the joy that was set before him. His reunion with the father. Knowing that he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knows everything that's coming. Distinctive number two, Jesus was no hapless victim as he heads to the cross. No, Jesus' death was a predetermined execution. Yet still Jesus submits in faith to his father's plan. Distinctive number three. Number three, Jesus' death was a loving and specific offering. 
Jesus's death was a loving and specific offering. Not only does Jesus die because he loves his father and he loves his father's glory, but he also goes to the cross because he loves his people. It's loving and it's specific. Finish verse one. Jesus will die having loved his own who are in the world. He loved them to the end. There's three phrases here, key phrases. The first is, he loved. Jesus loved. Love is going to dominate the next half of this gospel. In the first half, chapters 1 through 12, life and light have been the emphasis. Life and light. I am the light of the world. He who believes shall have eternal life. It's life and light. So the most common words, 86 times in that first half. But now from chapter 13 on, life only occurs six times. Light, not at all. All of that has been replaced with love. Dominating theme, it's love. The love Christ has for his father, the love the father has for Christ, the love believers are to have for Jesus, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The love believers are to have for one another. You see that in chapter 15. This is my commandment that you love one another. Christ goes to the cross because of love. This is a selflessness. This is a sacrifice. Second key phrase, to the end. He loved to the end, to the telos, to the max. This is love of highest intensity. Love to the fullest extent, love to completion. This is a reference to crucifixion. Christ's sacrificial love is boundless, it's to the max, boundless. He takes upon himself our sin, endures his father's judgment so that we're spared. Why? Because he loves us. His love is gracious. Don't forget the ragtag group of people Jesus dies for, his apostles. Don't forget the ragtag group of people we are, right? This is a gracious love. This love is humble. He descends from heaven to earth to do this, to offer himself. Love is driving Jesus to his death. But there's a third phrase. John's going to get very specific here of what kind of love Jesus has. Notice this third phrase in verse 1. Jesus loved his own. He loved them, his own, to the end. What John is making clear here is that Jesus did not die for everyone. Jesus does not have the same love for everyone. Jesus has a specific love for the people to whom he dies for. He loved his own. He dies for his own. Notice, who are in the world. He doesn't die for the world. He dies for his own who are in the world. Who are his own. It's only those who have come to him in saving faith. You can connect this to what comes before in chapter six. Who are his own. It's only those the father draws to Christ. It's only those whom the father has chosen for Christ. 
It's only those who have turned from their sin to follow him in repentance and faith. It's a very specific sacrifice, very specific love. Think of what Jesus said in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep, not the sheep and the goats. See this repeated in chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It's a specific love that is driving Jesus to his cross. So this explains why in verse 27, Jesus will dismiss Judas. He dismisses him. Leave, do what you need to do, do it quickly. Because the promises Jesus is going to give his disciples are blood-bought promises. They are not for Judas. They're only for his own. When you get to chapter 17 and you see Jesus' high priestly prayer, starting in verse 8, Jesus is praying for those who believed in him, believe that you, Father, sent me, specific for believers, a prayer only for believers. He says, I ask on their behalf. The prayer that I'm offering my Father is only for my sheep, my own. Clear, next phrase, I do not ask on behalf of the world. I'm not interceding for anyone other than my own. Those whom you have given me. Why? For they're yours. You chose them, you called them, you drew them. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Let's broaden it out. Not only for his apostles, but for those also who believe. Specific prayer for those who believe. It's a great high priest. Praying for those who believe in me through their word. Jesus' death was not just some general death. Specific, particular. For a specific group of people, those whom the Father had given him who have come to him in saving faith. And this should humble us. This should humble us because we were saved from our sin solely because of God's grace, not our goodness. It should raise our praise for Christ because we loved him. Why? Because he first loved us, specific love for us. Specific love. And it's the max love, the complete love. He's loved us to the end, all the way to the cross. It's distinctive number three. Jesus' death was a loving and specific offering. Distinctive number four. Number four, Jesus' death won a cosmic victory. Jesus' death won a cosmic victory. Notice what John adds in verse two. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Up to this point, In the gospel, the devil, Satan, has not played a major role at all. There's been no demonic activity recorded by John. None. None of Jesus' signs, John included, 
had the casting out of demons. But now Satan takes a primary role here in these last few hours of Jesus' life. Here, we're told that, again, verse two, the devil, notice the contrast, the glory of Christ's love is sacrificed to give life. You have the epitome of evil and destruction. You have the devil putting into, throwing, casting into the heart of Judas the desire to betray Jesus, to commit the most heinous act of evil. This is not meant to excuse Judas's culpability for the evil. It's not the point. Rather, this is meant to show that Jesus is battling more than an AWOL disciple. And he's fighting more than the chief priests, more than Pilate and his Roman soldiers. Jesus is going to war with a more powerful villain, a more sinister enemy. He's going to wage war against the devil, the serpent of old, who was victorious against the first Adam. And now this same devil is trying with all of his supernatural might to cause the second Adam to fall into sin and fail in his saving mission. And he will do anything that he can. Drop down to verse 27. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. He takes possession of Judas. Not a demon, Satan taking possession of Judas. The point is this, Jesus is battling the greatest evil force in this world. And when he dies, he is going to win the ultimate spiritual battle we could not win. Finally, finally, the promise of Genesis chapter three that the seed of the woman is gonna crush Satan's head, finally, that is going to be fulfilled. Yes, Christ died to pay for sin, but so too, Christ dies to defeat Satan as well. Christ's death is what doomed the devil forever. Hebrews chapter two, through death, through the death of the eternal son of God, he rendered powerless the devil. It's a cosmic victory, a cosmic battle. It's a battle that only the son of God could win. Distinctive number four, Jesus' death won a cosmic victory brings us then finally to distinctive number five. Jesus' death was an act of humble service. Jesus' death was an act of humble service. Verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that is to say, Jesus is fully aware of his divine authority. He knows his divine origin Continue the verse here. He knew that he could come forth. He had come forth from God. He knew his destiny. He knew that he was going back to God. That is to say, Jesus knows the power that is at his disposal. Power to vanquish every enemy, dispose of every foe. He could call legions of angels down. He says so in Matthew. Matthew. 
And so we might think that at this point, at this point with the evil that's coming, Jesus is going to expose Judas and end his charade. Or Jesus is going to extinguish Satan on the spot. He's in the room. Jesus does neither. Verse four, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. He does not call on the power that is at his disposal. Instead, the sovereign becomes a slave. The Lord becomes the lowly. Though all authority has been placed in his hands, he picks up a slave's towel and a water basin and he washes his disciples' dirty feet. And the way John records this is vivid. He wants us to see it happen like a movie, see it happen as we're reading it. He uses present tense verbs. Obviously, this is in the past, but he uses present tense verbs. See this happening as we're reading. See Jesus rise from the table. See Jesus untie his outer garments and lay them aside. See him take a towel and wrap it, tie it around his waist. All of that is servant, slave language. Even in verse five, see Jesus pour water into the basin and then take his apostles' dirty feet in his hand and scrub off the dirt that's on them. What is Jesus doing? This is an acted out parable of what Jesus is about to do for them on the cross. He's going to lay aside his own life. He's going to lay aside his own life like he lays aside this garment so that they would be clean. It's an acted out parable. He's still the son of man, Mark 10. The son of man, the glorious king. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to be a slave came to be a foot washer. And what is the greatest act of service he will offer his people? He will give his life. He will lay aside his life like a garment. He will lay it aside, not for everyone, but he will give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. If this doesn't humble us, I don't know what does. This is why we come every month to celebrate the Lord's death. Because because it's no ordinary death. It was final, predetermined, loving and specific, cosmic and humble for our sakes, for our forgiveness, our cleansing, our salvation. J.C. Ryle writes, the love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and morrow of the gospel. That he should love us at all and care for our souls. That he should love us before we love him or even know anything about him. He should love us so much as to come into the world to save us, take our nature on him, bear our sins and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. It is a kind of love to which there is nothing like among men, nothing. 
The narrow selfishness of human nature cannot fully comprehend it. It is one of those things which even the angels of God desire to look into. He's quoting Peter there. The angels desire to look into this gospel to understand it more. And yet for us, what has been given to us is the opportunity to celebrate this death, to rejoice in it, to give humble praise to our Savior because of it. Father, as we remember the death of your son now, Lord, may we be humbled because of the majesty of our Savior. Brought low because of the depth of this sacrifice. We confess, Lord, that we can't understand all the intricacies here. How do we understand a a cosmic victory? How do we begin to grasp the eternal son laying aside his life for us. We can say those words, can understand those concepts, yes, but the depth of them, the depth is lost on us. We're finite. So we confess that to you this morning. But still, Lord, given our finiteness, raise us in praise, raise our affection for our Savior, Allow us to take of these elements in a worthy manner of repentance and love for our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.